In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart App is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh. That is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh. That is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspired their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. Well, I never thought about me being in show business. I was a fan. Didn't watch TV, and I loved the movies. My guests today both worked in film and TV during the golden age of Hollywood. Robert Osborne began his career acting, but his fascination with show business drama on and off the set led to a very different job, one he seems to have been made for. Hi, I'm Robert Osborne, and our Jimmy Cagney tribute continues now with Jimmy in the This is The Third Man. Osborne has been host of Turner Classic Movies for almost two decades. His knowledge of the film industry is encyclopedic, and he will tell you it's rare when a movie comes along and inspires a whole generation of actors, singers, and directors. Singing in the Rain is one of those movies. It also transformed the life of its leading lady, Debbie Reynolds, my first guest this hour. Reynolds was just a 20-year-old actress under contract at MGM, but after her performance in that iconic film, she was destined to become a star. Some of the highlights of Reynolds' career include Tammy in Tammy and the Bachelor, with a song that reached number one on the Billboard charts. I hear the cottonwoods whispering above, Tammy, Tammy, Tammy's in love. Reynolds was nominated for an Academy Award for her leading role in the unsinkable Molly Brown, and received a Tony nomination for her Broadway debut in the musical Irene. Debbie Reynolds was born in Texas and raised in Burbank, California. But after her career took off, the small-town girl found herself living in a universe occupied by the biggest stars of her time. Right across the street was Jimmy Stewart and Lucille Ball, and everybody was on that one street. It was like, let's have a party every night. George Burns and Eddie Cantor lived on one block. So I would drive over there because that street was more fun than my fun. Right. There was a lot of fun to be had back then. This was still the golden age of Hollywood, but it was also the studio system 
where executives bought and sold actors like property. Although, according to Reynolds, it had its upside, too. When we were under contract, most of us, Shirley MacLaine and Elizabeth Taylor, were at MGM. And everything was done for us. You know, the makeup, the hair, they sent cars for us. We were very spoiled. We didn't kind of know what to do when they dropped everybody, like when television came in. Sure. Can you remember what year around that was, the end, the end of the 40s? 48, 49. The studio system kind of died as you get into the 50s? It is slowly died a death, you know. It was, like, interesting to watch. It was, I didn't realize it was the end, you know. I didn't know that it was that. You didn't know what the change meant. Well, I was a young girl, so I didn't, and I wasn't an intellectual. I wasn't educated. You're I from wasn't, Burbank. I'm from Burbank. You're a gal from Burbank. Uh, and originally from Texas. And you Texas. wanted to be a gym teacher. That's me. You know, well, I always aim high. <laughs> yeah, me too. I love Jim. You know, I love. Uh, I wanted to sport. be a lifeguard. Son, girls. Well, yeah. You know, swim. Yes. Well, I was never that ambitious. I wanted to be a gymnast. I wanted to work on the bars and uh, and trapeze work. <laughs> I loved all that stuff. As a young girl in Burbank, and you're athletic, no doubt. Mm -hmm. What's the first thing that happens that says show business to you? Well, I never thought about me being in show business. I was a fan, and I would go to the movies because my mother let me, but no one else in our church was allowed to go to films because movie stars were all evil creatures, just yes. dreadful. Yeah. My mother let me go to films. Your mother was very religious. Very, my family, my, except my dad, my father used to say, no, 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 I'm not going to go to church with you. I've told you that I'm not going to go because all those good people will be killed if I walked in. The roof would fall <laughs> in. You know. And he was always teasing sure. my mother. Well, 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 if you don't mind my asking, what church did you go to? Church of the Nazarene, which is like Hardshell Baptist, kind of like so Your that. mom was a hard, she was a Texan. She was a Texan. She was a Texan Baptist. She was tough and strict, and there were so many rules. How know. many kids in the family? Just my brother and I were in the family, and then my mother discovered what And what's your brother's name? Bill. And do you know who Bill is oh, to me? No. You don't know? No. Do you know that Billy Reynolds was my makeup artist on Knott's Landing for a year and a half? Oh, my gosh. Was he Your really? brother, Billy, was, isn't he the was greatest? my makeup artist. And? He's one of the people that helped me. Survive that experience well, he because would. those three broads, the broads were from the Joan Collins That's school where they were having the makeup put on with a trowel every day. That's right. They had to have federally funded programs to pay for the makeup for them. Billy Reynolds would turn to me and he'd sit there and say, You know, did you bring a book with you? He'd go, We're going to be here for a while. These gals are two, three hours in the chair. Yeah. And then he told me, that he was Elvis's makeup artist. Yes. And do you know that every time he mentioned Elvis, he didn't mention it a lot because he was very No, very shy, yeah. Very shy. He mentioned Elvis once or twice, and he started to cry. Oh. He would turn away from me and hide his face. He said to me, Elvis was the greatest man I ever worked with. Well, you know, they used to play, Elvis used to tease him a lot and put snakes down his pants <laughs> and uh, popcorn, awful. they'd pop popcorn and put it in his drawers. You know, they used to kid my brother. They used to just pick on him, kind of, but he didn't care. My brother was a baseball player, a really man's man. Where is he now? He lives in, in my house no. with me. Will you give him my love? I will. I don't even know if he'll remember me. 
Oh, Hope sure. He oh, he remembers everything. He just doesn't talk about it. You know, some men that are like uh, almost reclusive, but not really, because underneath all of that is a great sense of humor. I adore my brother. I think our life was rather tedious and hard because we didn't have any money. I mean, my dad made 200 a month. I, now, that's better than nothing. But it still also buys very little. Mm-hmm. So... Our life was a little bit meager. You know, we never had a Christmas tree. We never had. So when the opportunity came along for you to get into the business, yeah, and I, I'm from the same school, actually, I'm wondering, were you as enticed by it and were you as thrilled by it, as much about making money to help your family as you were about mm-hmm. your own glory? Well, mostly I, I, I thought it was a joke that uh, I won this contest and then all of a sudden I'm, I'm in movies, the silliest thing what I ever. What was the contest? It was Miss Burbank. You, oh, you were Miss Burbank. Burbank. Yeah. Don't, 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 don't downplay that. No, I like that's, that's a great it's honor. It's changed my whole life. It made my whole life wonderful and marvelous. Travel all over the world and meet all these m- fabulous, interesting people and see different countries. And so I'm very proud to say I was Miss Burbank <laughs> and had a hole in my bathing suit near my rear end was hanging out and I didn't have shoes, high heel shoes. So I had. I'm very uh, grateful for stumbling into show business. The first step. Yeah, I loved it. Then after Miss Burbank, what happened? They took me to Warner Brothers and made a little screen test and asked me why I wanted to be a movie star. So, of course, I told them I didn't want to. And okay. after they laughed and they said, of course you do. I said, no, I don't. I don't really. I mean, this is just fun. You're just, this is, you're kidding around, right? I was very square, and uh, my family were very virginal, you know, very go to church Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Are you glad they were square? I'm grateful for that kind of upbringing. Because throughout your career, and I'm not just saying this, I mean, I wouldn't waste your time or mine. You know, you're a gorgeous woman. Everybody thinks of you and think of you being three things, beautiful and talented, but also being very straight-laced. I mean, your career was something where there's a kind of a, uh, in the sensuality quotient, there's Ava Gardner over here. Just kind of working that whole thing. And then there's you, who you didn't work that whole thing. Did you find that was something that was because of your childhood and your upbringing? I just grew up that way, so I I thought that's the way everybody was. Until after uh, three husbands, now I realize that that's a totally wrong concept. (laughs) Unlucky in love, unlucky. What else happens when you're unlucky in love? I just made it up. Oh, you just wrote that song? Just for you. Okay. Well, we should record you later good on. We morning, should sing it together. Good morning. We've danced the whole night through good morning. Good, good morning, morning to you and you and you and you. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to stay up late. Good morning. Good morning to you. What fun, you see? I can't sing to save my life. If you put a gun to my head and said sing, I'd be dead. you almost sang on key. When did you know you could sing? When did you know you? When did you realize um, you could just sing? Just started singing like other people. So what you're saying? So you started by doing mimicry. I started mimic. Yes, Jeanette McDonald's. I never tried Jeanette McDonald. <laughs> She's a soprano, but I would uh, do the alto and Ethel Merman. Anybody with a big voice, you know, I'd always do their voices because I. I enjoy comedy. Comedy is everything. I love vaudeville. That's my favorite thing. I enjoy drama. Somebody else doing it. I personally don't want to do it, Debbie Reynolds, because it's so serious. It makes me sad. Mm. It takes me where it goes. And so I don't accept any parts that are devastating because I don't want to be unhappy in my life. Mm. I'll just live my life. as That's tough enough. Right. So I don't need any 
parts that make me miserable. So when you're at Warner's and you say to them, I don't want to be an actress, and they do the screen test, what happens there that you wind up banking over to MGM? Well, what happens is they send me to a meeting, and so they call Gene Kelly in the room, and Mr. Mayer says, here, Gene, this is uh, the new girl that you're going to have as your leading lady. And, uh, and you're 17. I'm 17. Good and I had never danced before. I'd never acted before. Nothing, nothing person. Just a girl scout. So there I was with Gene Kelly, a movie star. I couldn't believe the whole scene. I mean, I just thought the whole thing was silly. I really thought it was silly. So uh, Mr. Kelly says, can you do a time step? I said, oh, oh, yes, I learned that at Girl Scout camp. So he said, do a time step. So I did a little awful time step. Then he said, can you do a Maxi Ford? And I said, I, I don't have a car. Well, obviously, that was the wrong answer. He looked at Mr. Mayor and he said, you're kidding me, boss. And Mr. Mayor said, no, I'm not kidding you, admitting you. This is is the leading lady. And that was it. He was stuck with me. Poor thing. Can you imagine, Gene Kelly? And and, and these guys were, I'm assuming, like like many of the actors I know today, they're pretty no-nonsense people when it comes to the quality of their their product. They're very hardworking. Well, Gene Kelly, of course, the most brilliant dancer. Gene said... All right, I'll take her. I can, I can fix her. I can fix it up. Because she's right for the part, the acting part. But a stare taught you, too. He helped me. Uh, I was trying to learn everything, like with Donald, run up the wall and flip backwards. I mean, I knew I was a flip, but, you know, I had to learn how to... I wanted to learn everything. And then I'd be crying under the piano. One day, a pair of legs go by, and I'm, I'm crying away, and the legs say... Who is that under the piano? Who is crying? So I said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's just me, Debbie. So it was a Fred Astaire. He said, Debbie, get out, get out from underneath. They pulled me out, and he said, now you come and watch me rehearse. I never allow anybody. He always had a, a, a guard at the gate, a security guard. No one was ever allowed, but he let me watch, and for maybe over 40 minutes, and his face turned all red. He just used a cane and a drum. After about a half an hour, and his face turning red, and he's doing brilliant work, of course, he looked over at me and says, Now, Debbie, I want you to go back in there, stop crying, and be great. In order to be a great dancer, you have to practically kill yourself. This is what it takes to be a great dancer. Work, work, work. Now run in there. Just run in there. Shut up and do it. Did that help you? Oh, yes. I just felt like I was a big sissy. And I didn't like to be a big sissy in those days or any other day. And so when you you finished the movie, and when it was done, how did you feel when it was over? I think you've learned a great deal. Either that or you already quit. Because in order to keep up with these great talents, you had to devote yourself totally. I didn't go home. I slept in my dressing room. We didn't have Saturday off. We only had Sunday off. And I'd practice all the time. And I don't think I changed it all. I just learned how to apply myself. And what about people's perception of you? That must have changed. The picture came out what year? I don't remember what year. 1952? Something like that. You're a movie star now, correct? Well, I was popular. They couldn't believe a young girl had gotten that far and no talent, no no experience. So I was uh, newsworthy. But in those days, we had movie magazines, and they'd write 
all kinds of stories for free. You know, the studios would give. It was the golden era. So, and what kind of stories did they write about you then, when you're only seventeen, eighteen years old? What did they? They'd write? make it up. You know, they'd get give a little party. <laughs> they'd give a party. They they had Rock Hudson going out with his secretary. You know, Rock didn't want to go out with his secretary yeah, unless it was Paul. Uh, yes, yeah. that's John, Sam, and yes. Joe. What's the next picture you did after singing in the rain? Uh, after singing in the rain, I did How the West Was Won right. with every star you've ever heard about. The first movie I ever saw in a movie theater in my life, ever. It was a wonderful picture. How the West Was Won. Spencer Tracy narrated the whole thing. Yeah. Stars Stewart. you'll never see again. Yeah. Never. And John Wayne was in that. Yeah. Uh, everybody. Yeah. It took two years to make that picture. Yeah. I started out playing a 16-year-old and ended up a 90-year-old. <laughs> sort of felt like my life. <laughs> These did you, things did you enjoy that picture? I worked very hard on that picture. And Henry Hathaway was the director, right. and he was really tough. And uh, very hard on everybody, you know. Not very kind to actors. No. But we were all a little bit uh, stupid and... Uh, Employees. Slow. Right. He thought we were slow. So he... he uh, I had heard this about him, you know, that he was a very tough director. So when he came over to Fox Studio where I was making another film with Andy Griffith, I said to him, uh, he wanted me to do it, uh, the first part of it, How the West Was On. I said, well, sir, the truth of it is that I've heard really such bad things about you. I don't want to work with you. So he just stared at me. He said, what the, f is that what? And so he's cussed like crazy. Really? Oh, yeah, he cussed. He said, you little snot nose, you little. Did he really? Oh, yes. So he, he just, he, he attacked you and got aggressive. He bawled me out. He, he just said, you, you have no right to say that I'm bossy or that I cuss and all that. I said, well, what are you doing now, what? for goodness sake? What do you think you're yelling at me for? Did, did he change we were in toward the commissary. You there were people staring and everything. I said, ah, this is why I would never work for you, because I don't want to be miserable. So I turned it down, and then he, he wouldn't let me turn it down. He said, no, you're going to do it. And he talked to the president of Fox and MGM, which owned my contract. They said I had to do it, so I had to do it. Come, come, there's a wondrous land Where I'll build you a home in the so back then, you signed those contracts, and people, I think, the, 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 the distance that the studio system has now, which receded so far for audiences today, they don't understand that notion that you signed a contract and you didn't get to pick the films you were in. You're owned. It's like a bondage. Right. It's like indentured a, servitude. That's it. exactly. How did the picture go with him? Was he? Was he? Was he? Well, I went. Uh, I did the first section as the one uh, that I was signed for. and went on location, and he said, "All right, walk over there." I said, "Where am I walking to, sir?" You just walk where I said pointing to. I said, "I have to understand where. Where am I walking? What am I saying?" He said, no, you don't. You just do what I say. I said, this is what I told you the day we had the lunch, that you were going to be rude and terrible to work with, and so I'm going to go lie down and rest. He said, no, you're not. You're going to walk over there, and you're going to shut up. I said, no, I'm not. I'm going to faint because uh, you've upset me too much. So I fainted. And what happened? Oh, I purpose. love this. I'm going to do that one day. I'm going to do that. No, you just pass out. When I meet a director, I'm like, I'm going to faint. Well, I'm they gonna can't go, oh my God, you've upset me so much. Boom. Boom. Fall. Just fall and down. Fall. Just let and him kick you. It doesn't matter. So lay down. So if you're laying, did Hathaway come up and kick you? Did he kind of poke you with his boot or well, something? Well, he poked me. 
<laughs> he poked me with a boot. No, seriously. Uh, no, he was his foot. You know, he poked me. He said, you wake up, you silly son. What did what did you been cussing? You're kidding me. I wouldn't open my eyes at all because I was just in my mind. I said, no, just stay here all day. Just stay here. They can't wake make you wake up. So then they put some that chloro. What's that stuff under ether under your nose? So smelling uh, salts. Yeah, but I didn't still wake up. I just breathed really deeply, like broad. yoga. You know. No, I was. I so was. You were doing this Ayurvedic breathing of smelling salts. Yes. That's how obstinate you were. I was not going to wake up. He couldn't w- get me up. So what was the conclusion thing. of this? What happened? Did you? you I'm assuming because you're here, you eventually got up. He walked away finally. He said, she's faking. I know she's faking. And I'm going to kill the little kid. And so, then he became amused by it. Because he thought he, he knew back. I was faking. But I wasn't going to ever wake up. He so he knew, kind of respected you a little bit? He you knew I wasn't going to wake up. He knew I wouldn't do it. I was a lot like Hathaway, right. see? So. You really aren't this wholesome, that Nazarene <laughs> from Burbank. You're, no, you're a devil. It's fun to be with imp. me. You can flip you like around trouble. all day. Yeah, you like trouble. Well, no, I just get you're out of trouble. You're a troublemaker. <laughs> you're very willful. I'm Aries. Yeah. I'm born April Fool's Day. Who's a director that you loved? I really loved all the directors. I loved Hathaway, too. I, I became very dear friends and visited you together. You are an Aries, aren't you? You're an Aries. And I'm, I'm not big on astrology, but people who are Aries, they always say they love to bury the hatchet and have people get along. Yes. And even though you can have a bad temper and you can have grudges against people, they don't last. No, you just speak up. Right. You're kind of rigorously honest, if we, if you will. But for you, you buried the hatchet with Hathaway and he became a friend. You're someone that doesn't like to hold a grudge with people. No, I don't, but I'm rather like an elephant. I, I, I remember everything. Yeah. And Debbie Reynolds has had her share of hatchets to bury. In 1955, she married singer Eddie Fisher. It was the show business wedding of the year. Four years later, Fisher famously left Reynolds for her best friend, Elizabeth Taylor, whose husband had recently died in an airplane accident. But she patched things up with Elizabeth years later. They had known each other since they were kids. You know, when a man wants to go, he wants to go, he goes. I've learned that, certainly. So, of course, I forgave her years after that because she, she forgave herself. Marriages two and three were less public, but no less painful for Reynolds. Now she's sworn off that institution. In a minute, she'll talk about her relationship with her daughter, actress Carrie Fisher. I'm Alec Baldwin, and here's the thing. Take a listen to our archive. More in-depth conversations with artists, policymakers, and directors like Judd Apatow. I need constant approval of my writing as I'm doing it. So I will show people the first scene, the first 10 pages. What people? Anybody. Listen to more of my conversation with Judd Apatow at heresthething.org. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. 
Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. With 8 hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com slash fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com slash FITS. This is Alec Baldwin. My guest is Debbie Reynolds. In 1996, she played Albert Brooks' mother in his film Mother. It was her first starring role in over 25 years. I'm uh, John. Oh, this is my son. The other one. Oh. He's staying with me for a while. In real life, Debbie is mother to Carrie Fisher, who introduced Debbie to her friend Albert Brooks. Carrie Fisher is, of course, a star in her own right. Her solo show, Wishful Drinking, discusses her battles with drugs, alcohol, manic depression, and being the child of Hollywood royalty. It's poignant and hilarious. Having waited my entire life to get an award for something, you know anything, I don't care. All right, fine, not acting. But what about, like, a tiny one for writing? I now get awards all the time for being mentally ill. I am apparently very good at it, and I get honored for it regularly. So she is so funny. Oh, yes, she's brilliant. She's, She's a brilliant. brilliant. I was, the children were really little. I was very worried about my health. I was on the road and I was just working like mad in vaudeville, and I was concerned. And the children were were very small. And I, I called up Jean Dixon, who was a prophet yes, yeah. and lived in Washington. And I mean, she you know she did with the government and all kinds of. And she was it was the truth. She was sensational. Gave me an appointment and I sat down and she told me exactly what my children have become and everything that happened. She told me I was married to Harry Carl at the time. She said, when you go home, you're going to have to face a divorce, and he has taken all of your money. When you go home, you will find that out. So you don't know anything about it? I said, well, no, I, I let him take care of the money. She said, oh, well, he is. Mm. Carrie is going to be in white robes and stand on a stage. This is the astrologer, Jean Dixon. Jean Dixon, who is very world famous. Did she predict Kennedy's assassination as well? She predicted yeah. everything, yes. Kennedy's, Robert Kennedy. Oh, that was her claim to fame. And Jack Kennedy, right. yes. You wrote in your book that you're unlucky in love. Why were you unlucky in love? What do you mean because by that? Because I'm just too old-fashioned. You picked the wrong you people. Know. Well, of course I picked the wrong men, but that, that's because I, I am easy. You know, I'm easy. I don't ever argue. I mean, you need the money here, you take it. Oh, you need that? Well, you, you trust you, people. Well, I'm very trusting. How is Carrie like you and how is Carrie like Eddie? Can you see the 
the lines there? Well, uh, Carrie was born with Eddie as the father, and he was on speed. So Carrie was born with manic depressive bipolar. So she will have that for the rest of her life. Oh, she and was. it's a dread disease for oh, you Carrie. Think she got that from him. Yes, from Eddie. It was very sweet of him. Carrie has an illness that is a severe problem over the whole world, and they do not have any answers for you. She's taking shocker treatments right now, and it's a family's pain. We all have it because we so want Carrie to be well, Mm -hmm. and that's what we pray for all the time. Mm -hmm. And she's so funny. How's Billy? Her daughter is yeah. divine, and she goes to school here yeah. in New York. And she's the most beautiful, young, smart, really smart. And uh, she's smart. taking accounting, so I think we'll be all right. Yeah. <laughs> Those things won't she happen She won't come again. to me for about money. And Carrie's going to be fine. She's fr- brilliant, and she's a great writer. What did Carrie get from you? For, from me? Yeah. What did she get from uh, you? <laughs> <laughs> I see. <laughs> laughter. Right. Right. If you could give people laughter, that would be the ideal thing. I know this is going to sound really cliched and kind of silly, but, you know, you come from such a great era of movie stardom. Your name means something. When you say someone's name, you kind of go, oh, okay. But your name, you say a certain kind of a film, people automatically think like the big golden age of Hollywood musicals and you and Kelly and all these movies and unsinkable Molly Brown and all these great films. Even though people don't realize that you stopped making films, I wrote this down, you stopped making films by and large at around, what's the matter with Helen in 1971? And then from 1971 Mm. to 1996, according to uh, your biography, most of what you do is voiceovers or retrospective releases like it. That's entertainment. You know, you don't work a lot during that period in film. I just do nightclubs. I, I work you theater. Do club act. I, I do a club act. I, I work 42 weeks a year. I you worked did. every day. I Where would you go? Everywhere. Colorado, you toured Oklahoma, the country singing. Texas. Yes, Australia, England. I did, uh, did the really? five a day in England. So for I, 20 I years. became a vaudevillian for 20 years to you make a, a living for my children. And then, and then in 1996, you go and do the movie with Albert Brooks. Yes, I did. Mother. How did he convince you to do that movie? No, Carrie called me. She said, Mother, I read a script Albert Brooks. They were very good friends. did, and it's so funny. You have to do it. I said, well, you know nobody wants me for movies anymore, dear. She said, well, Mother, I want you to fly up here. I was in Vegas, and I owned a little hotel, and I had a nightclub, and I was happy as a hog in heaven. So she said, well, no, I don't care, Mother. You have to fly. So I flew in, and I met Albert, and I read a scene for him and he said to me you've got it and I said what does that mean Albert (laughs) he said well you've got it you've got the part I said Albert I have to meet the director oh I am the director Debbie Oh, I, I, I didn't know Albert, I said, because, you know, I know him since he's a young boy. And then I said, well, you have to see the producer then, dear. You can't just suddenly hire Debbie. Well, I know, yes, I can. I'm the producer. I'm the producer. I'm the director. I wrote it. Yeah. And, and yes, you're going to do yeah. it. He's Orson Welles. I said, yeah. Albert, I, I, you'll get into trouble. He said, no, you really are going to get it now because you're bossing me. So now you're just like my mother. So you've got the part <laughs> for sure. Can you eat lamb chops? 
Well, what the hell is a lamb? It's meat. I told you, I don't eat it. Well, it's not a cow. I didn't know if it was the animal you were siding with or the whole thing. The whole thing. You want some cheese? Albert yeah. was very sweet. He wanted Doris Day, but she just wouldn't do it because she would have been terrific. But as we all know, Doris doesn't want to go back on the screen. And I didn't want to because I was in Vegas and I was running my hotel. I'm happy I did. I think and you made a lot of films and a lot of TV shows since then. Uh, Will and Grace. Right. What did you play? Well, what do you mean? I played well, Grace's role? mother. Right. You, you were Grace's mom. Adler. Her name was Adler. And uh, so uh, she sang a lot and did impressions. It was a lot of fun to do. And you, have you stopped the, the club act? Are you still doing that? Are you still? No, I still do my club act. I've been under the weather for about four months, so I've been kind of taking it easy and getting my health you back. Look fanta- Can I tell you something? You look fantastic. Well, you look you're gorgeous. very sweet. You look gorgeous. <laughs> you're giving me my birthday party. No, you look beautiful. <laughs> Thank you, dear. And I wish you all the happiness with your new wife and a baby. Mm. Your life is all ahead of you. I love my baby so much. And even though they're all grown in your age, practically, you know, there's nothing like it. It's just so special. I'm really looking forward to it. You know, when I think of you and you being part of that, you know, great era of uh, studio filmmaking, do you ever watch your stuff that you did? Do you ever go back and watch those films, or you don't bother? Well, some of the films, I I, I watch everybody else's films. Betty Davis, oh, I loved her. And Katherine Hepburn, I, I love. So when you watch a movie, you watch a movie from back then? Oh, yes, I only watch old movies. You don't go to see, you don't go exactly, so you don't go see movies today? Not really. You don't? Not even screeners from the Academy or DVDs at home? So you're, if, you're not, if someone tells me it's really wonderful, I'll go. So like Titanic you'd watch or something? No, I didn't go to see Titanic. You <laughs> <laughs> You've no, been there. No, I, I did that movie. Yeah, you did that movie. <laughs> no, uh, I... I just did a film with the, it was about Liberace behind the candelabra with Michael Douglas with Michael Douglas and uh, played Mrs. Liberace and uh, because I like to do dialects you know and I knew Mrs. Liberace and I knew Lee we were you know very good friends yes. yes we were really dear friends and he'd always call me up after the show and we'd go out together and he'd say wear white all white Debbie and your jewelry and then he'd arrive in the limousine with a chauffeur's hat on and he'd drive me I mean he was <laughs> so much fun I loved Liberace he was great so I did his mother. How was Soderbergh to work with? Did you like Soderbergh? Oh, he was wonderful. The director was wonderful. Great director. I just had a little part, you know. Sure. And she had an accent. There are no little parts, baby. She was. She was. Well, there was the, the only thing hard is dialect to, to be real. And you have to do, do when you do the dialect, is Polish. And so you have to talk like the, the, real, the real one and to be you know, unbelievable. Because I am very good at dialects. I love to do them. You know, what, you know what's amazing to me is you still enjoy doing this. Yes. Even though this is something that you came into almost accidentally. You know, you won the contest and you went over to Warner Brothers. I think and you it were was like, a gift They said, God. we want you to be in the movie business. And you laughed when they said that. And yet here you are when you were 16 years old. And now you're 81 years old. <laughs> 65 years later. That's right. You still enjoy doing this, don't you? Absolutely. If you're blessed enough to uh, be able to have something to do that you love, besides marriages, I mean, that's the only thing that's been a disappointment to me in my life. 
Honey, you're looking at the man you should have married. Here I, it's me. Here I am. <laughs> I wouldn't have stolen your money. We, you and I would be home right now watching Turner Classic movies, eating popcorn. I'd be giving you a foot rub. <laughs> I have a wonderful life. I really do. God bless everybody. I really am very But I bet happy. you another thing you have, and you don't have to confirm this, but I bet you I know another thing you have, which is when you meet people, your fans... I bet you they just love you. They're my friends. They're not my fans. You know, everybody I meet, I just feel like I know them. 65 years, and they they made me. They, they gave me my work, and they stay by me all these years. Yeah. You know, I work in Vegas all the time, and I work in Laughlin, which is called, it's in Nevada. Sure. You're and, Bullhead City, right? Yeah. Anywhere there's a job, I work. You enjoy doing it live that way? How long is your show? Oh, sure. The whole act, an hour and a half. I do an hour and a half. You do an hour and a half. I do a lot of comedy. Well, I mean, I try to make it funny. Well, let, 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 let me end with this. Acting for me is very strange now. I, I'm, I'm kind of done with it. You know what I mean? I don't think I want to do it much longer. And the world has changed. You know, as you well know, it's very different the way. Uh... Is that your phone? I think it is your phone. Where's my... Isn't that odd? Yeah. Where's my... Oh, wait. Isn't it? <laughs> what you're listening Excuse to now us, is folks, Debbie Reynolds taking her phone out it's of her my, pocket. Uh, it's my son, I'll bet you. Debbie Reynolds is now taking out all the accoutrement, her little Asian But I don't... I can't find case. the phone. She can't find the... Let's find it, Oh, here it is. There it is. Well, and it... This is this is how my son was born. Nine pounds three ounces. Took a long time to get it out. I was nine pounds. Hello. Three Good heavens, uh, that's hard to find. Can you say it again? Hello. Did I get you too late? That's the story of my life, isn't it? Must be a man. Well, I'm going to hang up now. I'm visiting with Alec Baldwin. He's a big star, yes. He lives in New York. Just got married again. A young girl. They always pick them younger. I know. Damn right. Yeah, I might as well give up. That's one thing that hasn't changed in Hollywood. (laughs) Yeah, nothing has changed. I wanted to say, I'd love to work with you one day. I'd love anytime. I would love to work with you one day. I, if there's a movie <laughs> and there's a part in it for you to play my crazy aunt, will you come and That'd do it? That'd be fun to do the crazy aunt or come, the street lady the or anybody aunt. like that. Something. I like to do characters where I can faint. Debbie Reynolds' latest book is Unsinkable, and she has a huge collection of Hollywood memorabilia that you too can have a piece of. I'm selling it online, so if they... Debbie Reynolds what? DebbieReynoldsStudioStore.com. DebbieReynoldsStudioStore.com. You're selling your memorabilia. Lots of wonderful things. I'm going to go buy something on there. Okay, Charlie Chaplin's hat. How about that? Coming up, my next guest, film historian Robert Osborne, who had this to say about Debbie Reynolds. From the minute she came on the screen as a very young girl, she was so adorable, so bright, so comfortable on camera... What I think I admire the most about her, though, is her survival instincts. Even when she wasn't so popular anymore, she stuck in there, and she still forged ahead and still kept this career going. And she truly is unsinkable. Film historian and Turner Classic Movies host Robert Osborne, after this. Look, staying healthy isn't easy. Watching your diet, hitting the gym, avoiding stress... 
but a good night's rest helps boost your overall health and wellness. And it couldn't be easier. The new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed is the only bed that effortlessly adjusts and responds to both of you. The result? You wake up ready for anything. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. During our lowest prices of the season, the new Queen Sleep Number 360 C2 Smart Bed is only $8.99. Only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends you new cartridges, so you never have to think about ink. Save up to 50%. You'll pay less than $5 a month for ink and never run out again. Find out if your printer is eligible and enroll today at hpinstantink.com. Conditions apply. For details, visit hp.com slash Spotify. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. The next film in our Oscar marathon saluting nominees and winners in the category of Best Screenplay is one of the real biggies from that Banner film year of 1939. It's Wuthering Heights. From Robert Osborne Samuel has Goldwyn. been hosting Turner Classic Movies for almost two decades. I was lucky enough to guest host the show with him for three of those years. Now, something you may not know about The Third Man is there were actually two versions of this film. No A one British knows more about movies than Robert. He's the master of the relevant anecdote. He serves as an ambassador to a bygone era that he's helped make more popular than ever. In Osborne's own story, the players are legendary, the backdrop is epic, and the plot twists will make you say that could only happen in the movies. We open in Colfax, Washington, just west of the Rockies, a world away from Hollywood. I grew up in a small town where I went to the movies a lot and fell in love with all these people. I also fell in love with the movie business. So all I saw were actors on the screen. So I thought, well, that's what I have to be if I want to be a part of the movie business. He headed to Los Angeles where he met an agent who took him to Fox where he signed a six-month contract and was cast in a television show. The TV show finished and he went to the casting director to thank him for the work. The casting director suggested that he contact Lucille Ball's office. Lucy herself picked up the phone and invited him over. She said, let's watch your screen tests now. Lucy was somebody that the minute she wanted something, she did it. So when it was over... Lucy didn't really say anything. She just thanked me for coming by. And I thought, well, she wasn't that impressed, but at least I got to spend some time with Lucille Ball. Okay, like a week later, a message comes on my voice. Uh, You're answering service. Answering service. <laughs> Absolutely, answering service. Call Lucille Ball's office right away. Here's the number. Hello, La Brea 9, <laughs> 2000, who are you calling? Sue's answer phone, yes. I called the number, and the secretary said, well, Lucille Ball wants you to come to dinner on Friday night, if you're available, and meet Desi. I thought, well, that's interesting. So I go to Lucy's house that Friday night. There's no Desi, but there's Lucy, there's Janet Gaynor, there's Joseph Cotton, oh. there's Kay Thompson, oh. Chuck Walters, Charles Walters, the director, Roger Edens, and a couple of other people, and her sister, Cleo, who was actually her cousin but raised as her sister, and me. After the dinner... And they were all chatting and laughing and all of that. Drinking. Drinking. Not Lucy. <laughs> Lucy wasn't a drinker at right. that point. Right. She, she learned how to drink a little bit later on, but right. not at that point. So we went in the living room and— uh, Where was the house? On Roxbury, right next door right. to Jack Benny. Right in the heart of Beverly Hills. Right, right, exactly. 
and just down the street from Arbor Gershwin and around the corner from <laughs> Don't Agnes do celebrity Moorhead. map with me, yeah. you. <laughs> so anyway, after dinner, we went in the living room. She pushes the button and the, the painting goes up, pushes another button, the screen comes down. And I'm thinking, did you ever believe that you would ever be? And then I thought, no, wait a minute. I always knew I was going to be here. Did this you? Isn't, I did. Did you? Really? I remember that thought. I first started to say automatically, did you ever think, God, this and, is— and, and that was the beginning for you. Yeah, of, and I of, thought, no, I always knew I was going to be with people like this. And I relaxed then. I, I really relaxed. Because I thought, no, this is where you're supposed to be. Yeah, and They this, liked you and you liked yeah, them. this is where I'm supposed to be. What did they screen? What movie do you remember? Funny Face, which was, <laughs> which was about three years old. But what Your was, memory is so annoying. What, no, but what was great about it was there's a part in Funny Face when Kate Thompson and Audrey Hepburn get up and do a number called On How to Be Lovely Together. Kate Thompson got up by the screen and did the number. So, <laughs> and it was, you know, fun. Watch the movie. The movie was over. Everybody starts to go. So I think, well— I'm supposed to go, too. I still don't know quite why I'm here. And it certainly wasn't Lucy was saying, you know, stay around, little boy, or anything like that. It wasn't that. Yeah. So we got to the front door. And I was thanking Lucy for the evening. She said, well, have you signed the papers yet? And I said, what papers? The, I want you another contract. And yeah. I said, well, nobody's ever mentioned anything. You here to have dinner? <laughs> We're doing business, you fool. It's Hollywood. <laughs> yes, you idiot. Yeah. Nobody's ever mentioned anything about a contract or anything. And she said... Give them the address tomorrow and sign the papers. We don't offer these contracts to just anyone, <laughs> you fool. Jesus. So I was under contract then to Desilu. It didn't pay us much money at all, but it was like a master class for me. That's when I first met Betty Davis. Betty Davis came to L.A. in a play called The World of Carl Sandburg. So she took us to the play and then took us backstage afterwards to meet Betty Davis. And Vivian Lee came in Duel of Angels. And so she went backstage and said a little to Vivian Lee and took us with her. Anytime there was somebody like that, Noel Coward or Marlena Dietrich, uh-huh. she would take us there, pick up the tabs, because, again, she knew she wasn't paying enough money to, to keep up. for us to be able to do that. Okay. So we got this terrific education. And she also – now, Desi at this point was womanizing. He wasn't around much. So she would get movies – that we wanted to see or hadn't seen because they weren't that accessible in those days and run them at her house. Or she would show us I Love Lucy shows she'd done, bad ones, and show us why they didn't work. Right. Then show us a good one and why it did work. She and wanted I, to share with someone. Yes. She also, the first day any of us were in a contract there and we first met, she arrived. She'd just gone to a bank and she got uh, 12 savings accounts that she opened, put like $50 in. And she gave us, in each of our names, gave us the books. And she said, every week you have to put something away. And we were, as I say, making very little money. And say, Lucy, you know, we don't, barely enough to, to live on. She said, it can be only $5. But every week put something away. You won't miss it. It'll add up. She had a very maternal instinct. Yeah. And she it. said, no matter what, the thing you must do is have enough money that you don't have to make decisions based on oh. money. For a kid from Colfax, Washington, this was just invaluable. I've been to college, but I never had these kind of life lessons. In the course of it, she met my folks, and she got to know me. She said to me early on, you can do this as an actor, but she said, and I think you could do well, but it's not going to make you happy. This is not the right line of work for you. And she said, you love old films. You love history. You love everything about the business, and you're a journalism major in college. We have enough actors, you should write about movies. 
and the first thing you should do is write a book. She said, it doesn't even have to be a good book, but find a subject about the movies that nobody's done and write a book about it. And you did? And I said, why? She said, if you write a book, it shows you have the discipline to sit down and do that. And did you? Yes, I did. What book? It was a book about the Oscars. Is this the book right here? Oh, my God. Yeah. Academy Awards Illustrated. I want our <laughs> listeners to know that <laughs> yeah, Mr. Osborne's stunned expression yes, indeed. as I oh show God. a copy of the book that he, yeah, that indeed. he found. My God. That's the book. That is amazing. There he is. Yes, there he there was. He is. Do you think you clearly make a choice at this point in your life, or is the well, choice made for you? Well, the choice was kind of made for me because— I was not getting parts like Night Must Fall that I love doing. I did a soap opera for a couple of years called The Young Marrieds. I was always in a suit with a tie and with a, a briefcase helping the plot along, but it wasn't interesting. And I wasn't interesting. did a lot of commercials. I thought, you know, if this is the best I can do at this point, i got to get out of this altogether. Because I would look at a, a part, and I think George Papard could do this so much better than I can. Or Tony Perkins would be great in this. You fell out of love with it. Yeah. And I was not stage struck Real anymore. Simple. Yeah. Instead, Robert decided to pursue a career as a writer in Hollywood. And he continued to land himself in right time, right place situations. He interviewed actress Olivia de Havilland, who later called on him to escort her to a tribute to Betty Davis. Being friendly with de Havilland led to an appearance on the Dinah Shore show. There he confronted a furious Shelley Winters about her false Academy Award nomination claim. People took note. That Robert Osborne knew his stuff. He met with Teachy Wilkerson Miles, the publisher of The Hollywood Reporter, but the interview fell flat. One day, an old friend who worked at The Reporter called. She had a plan to get him in, but Robert Osborne still had a day job. And I said, well, I'm working in the box office of the Greek Theater. And she said, well, can you get off for the, this two-week period? Hank Grant, who writes the main column, Rambling Reporter, is taking a vacation. And they've asked me to write the column for him. And she said, I'll tell them I will. And then at the last minute, I'll tell them I can't for some reason. I'll recommend you do it. They'll have to get somebody to do it. This is your life story. Well, there's a lot of struggle in there beforehand, but once it started... Yeah, yeah, we get it. Once it started going, it really started going. But this is a great opportunity for you. Yeah. So I got called in. I had stories ready. I'd been doing it for about three days. I got a call from Teachy Wilkerson Miles. And she said, do you work for us? And I said, no, I don't, but I'm just coming in to help out. She said, would you like to work for us? And I said, Yes, I would. She said, well, you've got a job. It's Lucille Ball all over again. So, Come up here now. So I showed up for work. She was not around. She was on some trip. The editor said, well, I don't have any room for you in here. So just kind of wander around and get to know the paper. When she comes back, we'll ask her what she plans for you to do. Just before she came back, Marjorie, who wrote a column called On Location, where you go visit film sets for the paper, She got in a fight at the paper, and she quit. And when she was going out the door, they said, what are we going to do? Your column's due. We have to have a column for tomorrow. She said, have Osborne do it. He's not doing anything around here. And isn't it amazing how people who don't know these kinds of businesses, like the newspaper business, how it's really true? How do you become the drama critic? Yeah. You're writing the gardening column, and the drama critic drops dead at his typewriter, and they're like, Osborne, get over here and review the— And and so that's exactly what happened here. So all of a sudden, I wasn't writing for the in the editorial department. I had a column. How did you feel about that? 
I loved it. Did you? Except, you, you, except I don't think I was very good at it because I'll tell you why? what, it really sh- is supposed to be a gossip column or at least have inside dirt. And I never felt comfortable intruding upon people the one to keep a secret because I think secrets are important to have. You're very discreet. I've been around you many, many hours, and you're never sitting there saying, so there's this story that so-and-so told me, and you know so-and-so. You never get into that. And so that was problematic for you in writing that column? It was. You just, it you're, was. Not, you're not interested well, in dirt. It's, it's like— And making people look you know, bad. It's, it's, oh, I'd worked for, during one period, during, for a PR firm. And for a while, Rock Hudson was a client of ours. So I knew him well. And so I knew when he got AIDS that he had AIDS. Mm-hmm. But I would not write about that. At that time, I was also doing the evening news because all TV stations at one point had entertainment reporters. The lady who, a wonderful lady, Marsha Brandwin, who was the kind of news head there, and I got in a big argument about that. She knew I knew about Rock Hudson, and she said, you've got to go on the air with that. And I said, no, he -hmm. doesn't want that known. This is a very sick man. Mm -hmm. I said, if it was the president, that affects all of us in this country. He's an actor. So I wasn't that good at that. I mean, I think I wrote a lively column and an interesting one. How long did you write the column for? Oh, boy, for about 20 years. So you're doing The Reporter. It's 20 years of The Reporter. And then what? what, what? Okay. Then the CBS Morning Program in New York asked me if I would do entertainment reports at night in Los Angeles that could be put on the air on a new CBS Morning Program the next day. I'd always wanted to live in New York. So I said, what if I did them live in New York? The minute I got to New York, I thought, I can't ever go back. What about New York appeal to you? Oh, Is he more serious to you? No, every time I was in New York, I felt alive. I, I saw people reading books, and I saw there was so much activity going on. And, and Hollywood had changed. And we were ready to leave that was, Hollywood. Yes, and it was also cars, and you only you had to drive to get sure. anywhere. On the New York, you're on the street, you run into somebody, and you go have a drink with them. Yeah. And, I mean, I loved all that. That's when Dorothy L'Amour came to town, and she said, look, they're honoring Jimmy Stewart. I'm going to come back for two days. Why don't you— Take me to the Jimmy Stewart thing. I'll have the tickets and everything, and then we'll finally have that dinner the next night. Greatest show on earth. Mm -hmm. Right. So I said, where would you like to have the dinner? And she said, well, at 21, when I was a star, that's about the only place that's still in New York that was around when when I used to come to New York. So I took her to the Jimmy Stewart thing, and that night she said, look, I got a problem. I'm doing some promotional work for AMC. And the people at AMC want to take me to dinner. And the only night I can do it is the night we were going to go to 21. Would you mind if very nice guy, Brad Siegel, and a publicity guy with him, uh, Jim Weiss, if they joined us? And I said, no, not at all. And we all just sat around and, at her favorite table and we talked and told stories and all of that. And soon after, Brad called me and he said, you know a lot about movies. And I said, yeah, I guess I do. And he <laughs> said, well, we're th- – going to get rid of our afternoon guy at AMC. I'd love you to come and be the afternoon guy. This was a big deal. And I thought, it's perfect for me. Everything was, negotiations were underway. All of a sudden, he called and he said, I'm I'm not going to be here. I'm leaving. I'm going to go work for Ted Turner in Atlanta. And I was really disappointed because I like Brad Siegel a lot. And uh, a couple months went by. And then he called and he said, hey, have you signed with the AMC thing yet? And I thought he was badgering me to sign. I said, no, no, but I, I got the papers. I'll do it. He said, well, don't. Ted's going to start his own movie channel, and I want you to be the head guy. He said, I just want to tell you, if you come with TCM, you'll start with only 6 million viewers. If you go with uh, AMC, you'll have 60 million. If you come with TCM, you're going to have to come to Atlanta at least once a month. If you go with AMC, 
You can work in New York, but the library. He sure. said, if you come with TCM, you're going to have the MGM library, the RKO library, the Warner Brothers library, and all of that. And so there was really no choice. They launched TCM yes. with you as the, as the uh, hood ornament, so to speak, uh-huh. of that vehicle. Now, I want to go back to something you said, which is that you saw that film business had changed, and you were in those rooms with those people, and you were their friend. And then realism came. What was a movie you saw at that period that you said to myself, my God, the movies have changed? Well, Easy Rider. I happened to be in London, a place I never went to very often. Right. But I happened to be at the Royal Court Theater. In the row in front of me was Dennis Hopper, who had just come back from, I believe, the Cannes Film Festival, where they showed Easy Rider and it won some awards. Right. Or maybe it was the Venice Film Festival, whatever. Right. And they were talking about it, and I thought— The way the papers were writing about that, I thought, this is something very strange, that that movie about a couple of motorcycle guys on cycles, smoking a lot of grass, some of the stories and no plot, you know, this is is really— A seminal change. Yeah. I think that was a big turning point. Did you think that the Vietnam War was responsible for that change? I think think Kennedy being assassinated changed changed the world. That shot changed everything about America and— made us cynical, made people discontent, angry. You know, for me, when I was young, there was a man who, when you saw this man on TV, he was the movie business, and that was Walt Disney. And to me, you are the Walt Disney of your generation. You come on TV and right away people, because you have become so synonymous. I mean, people just love you. They love your show, and you mean the movie business. Do you sense that when you're out on the street with people? I get a sense of that, but I honestly don't see it. Who do you think you're talking to when you talk to the camera? When you do the wraparound? I talk to three people. I talk to my aunt who lives on a farm, who loves old movies but doesn't know much about him. I can't say Bertolucci without explaining that he's a director. I also talk to a guy that is now a young man, but he was in his early 20s, worked for the Hollywood Reporter that called me one time and said, you know, I just saw this great movie the other night. I was wondering if the lady in it made any other movies. I'd like to see some of those movies. And I said, well, what's the, what's the movie? He said, I didn't get the name of it. Well, who's the actress? I don't know what her name was. Well, describe the movie to me. He described it, and it was Gilda with Rita Hayworth. He's interested in movies. He wants to learn about movies and all of that. And I'm also talking to a friend of mine who died recently called Robert Rosterman in Chicago who knows as much about movies as any of us know. Okay. And what was I, his profession? He worked for years as a booker for 20th Century Fox. So he was in the biz? Kind of, yeah. But he was a, a dedicated movie fan. But I want to say something in each introduction that's also going to be news to him. So I try to gear it for those three people. My aunt and my friend John <laughs> and Robert Rosterman to cover all bases. Robert Osborne is 81. Last year, I went to a book party for Keith Richards. I found myself seated directly opposite Richards and his wife, Patty Hanson. Long story short, as Patty Hanson says, we just so love you, Alec. We love you on that TV show. And I thought, oh, good God, I go, Patty Hanson and Keith Richards don't watch 30 Rock. This is preposterous. She's just being so polite. And she says, what's that show? She says, Keith, that show we watch every week, we watch. And Keith Richards looks at me and goes... We watch you on Turner Classic Movies, man, <laughs> every weekend. It was so fantastic. We love that show. And I thought, Osborne has upstaged me again. Take a listen to our archive. 
more in-depth conversations with artists, performers, and policymakers like Martin Horn, former head of New York City's Department of Corrections and Probation. I would legalize drugs across the board. You would legalize which drugs? All of them. You would legalize all drugs? Yes. Yes. That's a pretty... Yeah. I, well, that's, I'm I stunned. Well, I wouldn't <laughs> say speechless. that. I wouldn't say that while I worked for a governor or a mayor. Learn more about the impact of the drug war from Martin Horn and David Simon of The Wire at heresthething.org. This is Alec Baldwin. Here's the Thing is produced by Emily Botine and Kathy Russo with Chris Bannon, Jim Briggs, Ed Herbstman. Melanie Hoops, Monica Hopkins, Trey Kay, Sharon Mashihi, and Lou Olkowski. Thanks to Larry Josephson and the Radio Foundation. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. El nuevo Crispy Chicken Sandwich de McDonald's es... Crujiente, tiernito, jugoso. Es pollo en la McDonald's, un mordisco y... ¡Wow! Es el nuevo Crispy Chicken Sandwich. Ordena por anticipado en el app de McDonald's. Para pa, pa, pa. En McDonald's participantes. The world is filled with stories. But the best ones are the made-up ones, and that's why there's This Is Americans Live, the new improvised comedy podcast from Will Ferrell's Big Money Players Network. Hi, I'm Aria Thiers. And I'm Andy Harris. Join us every week as we use our trusty random sentence generator to inspire us creating a series of scenes before your very ears. What will happen? I don't know. What will we learn? Probably nothing. Will it be funny? I hope so. I need this. It's This Is Americans Live, a new comedy podcast from Will Ferrell's Big Money Players Network. Listen to This Is Americans Live on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.